Keith, will you pray for us? Thank you. Heavenly Father, we're always grateful to come before you. We have that privilege. We thank you for this class. We thank you for my uh, teaching. We pray for your spirit to lead and guide in his teaching and our reception. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and you revealed your glory in the word. We pray that you would take that not just to our minds but to our hearts, that we might love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we were talking about uh, inspiration. Inspiration and what else? What else were we talking about last week? Do you guys remember? No. We started <laughs> Come on in the front row, Dan. The canon of the Scripture. The canon of Scripture. Okay. So who is, uh, when, we, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, what is the secret what is the secret to our success? It's God breathed. It's God breathed, okay. So he is the one who wrote it. So then who is the one who helps us understand it? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Okay, very good. So um, interpretation is always done by the Holy Spirit. It, Paul says that the only one who knows what's inside a man is the spirit of a man. The only one who knows what God is trying to say in the scriptures is God himself. That is why we need him to interpret it for us. And in interpretation, we're going to carry on with that this week, actually. So we need the Holy Spirit um, who wrote it to help us understand it. But we're going to finish last week's class material by talking about the self-authenticating aspect of Scripture. Self, self-authenticating. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, section 4 of chapter 1, says... And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the one, uh, of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Okay, so the scriptures prove. That they are the word of God by how beautiful they are, how excellent they are, how consistent they are. And and this is where we get the idea of self-authenticating, okay? Self-attesting. The principle that since God's word is the highest authority for us, it cannot be validated by anything higher. This is very important. And and it is A a, a circular argument. And if anyone tells you that, you say yes, amen. It is a circular argument. We're okay with that. Okay, if it is the word of God, there is no other standard by which it can be judged but by itself, because it's God's word. Okay, there's nothing higher than him, there's no court higher than him, there's nothing who understands the world of the cosmos better than he does, so no one is going to understand his self-revelation better than he does. So this is the hallmark of the reformers. Okay, the foundation for the doctrine of sola scriptura is that the scriptures are self-authenticating. And I'm just going to read some quotes here so that you guys can be impressed with how old this doctrine is. So John Calvin said, God alone is a fit witness of himself and his word. Scripture is indeed self-authenticated. Francis Turretin agrees. He says, the scripture, which is the first principle in the supernatural order, is known by itself and has no need of arguments derived from without to prove and make itself known to us. Herman Bavick 
reminds us that the church fathers understood scripture this way. In the church fathers and the scholastics, scripture rested in itself, was trustworthy in and of itself, and the primary norm of church and theology. So before, or therefore, Bavink argues, an ultimate authority like scripture, what he calls the first principle, must be believed on in its own account, not on account of something else. He says elsewhere, scripture's authority with respect to itself depends entirely on scripture. Okay? So if anyone ever says, well, how do you know it's the word of God? The answer is because it says so. Okay? And I think that this, uh, as an apologetic argument... um, is good, because what we're dealing with is ultimate authorities, okay, ultimate authorities. Uh, I have an ultimate authority, and it's the scripture, so much so that it, it, it proves itself to me because, it, it, because of its own witness. What people want to do is they want to make reason, they want to make, you know, historical arguments about documentations, and, right, they want to argue about the manuscripts, they want to argue about Right? They, they want to use all these different arguments. And I, I don't care a hoot about any of that. If you start to engage in that, as Wilson says, what you're doing is you're almost proving their point. Okay? <laughs> so just don't, don't engage. It's the Word of God because it says so. Okay. So that, that was actually the end of last week. We just didn't have time. So now what we're going to talk about is when it comes to interpreting, how, how is it that we actually interpret the Bible? Um, what is it that we're doing? What are the principles? Remember, we're, um, I keep thinking that we did this last week. Do you know why? Because earlier this week, I literally stood here and practiced. And now, in my mind, I'm thinking I did this already. <laughs> like, I tricked myself. <laughs> I did this already. You guys have never heard this before. I almost said, just like I said last week, but no one was here on Tuesday when I said that. <laughs> okay. Would have still been true. It would have still like been true. Just said yes. last week, just, just not to us. <laughs> All right, so this is where we're at. We started with um, the doctrine of revelation, okay? Um, and, and we covered um, the two forms. What are the two forms of revelation? There's two books by which we come to know God. Oh, nature. Nature. Nature is one of the books, okay? That's what they can... Scripture. Mm-hmm. In Scripture, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, are these equal? No. Yes. Oh, yes, they are. Yes and no. No, They're They're both right. They're both right. Yes, yes, yes. This is this modern man. We always need to know which one's more important. You need both. Okay. So we we covered Revelation, then we covered Inspiration, okay, Canon, and now what we're going to do is Interpretation. And all Interpretation means is that we take a text... And we explain what it means. That's it. That's my whole thing in a nutshell. Explain what it means. That's that's all. <laughs> so you open to um, Genesis chapter 1. That's the text. And now I want you to read it. And then I want you to tell me what it means. Okay? And now there's a lot of different ways to do that. Okay? There's a lot of things that you have to consider. What is the historical context? Okay? What are linguistics come into it? Okay, what else might come into it? Historical considerations, linguistic considerations. Cultural. Cultural, okay. Genre. Genre, there you go. Mm -hmm. Genre, very important. See, you guys know. You don't need this class. (laughs) The analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. Oh, now we're getting deep. 
analogy of faith. Good, good. I'll explain that in just a minute. Okay. So the text, that's what we're talking about, explaining a text. Now, I'm going to give you guys some jargon now. Okay? It's important if, right, there's a lot, obviously, that you already know. But to go a step further, there's a few key words that are important for us to understand. One of them is exegesis. Okay? And this is, we're, we're all into exegetical preaching. Uh, you know, you start at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you go all the way through to the end of the book, right? Exegetical preaching. You go along explaining it. But what does the word exegesis actually mean? Read out. Okay, to read out, draw out, read out. So you're, you're, um, you're, you're taking the text, like I said, and you're explaining it. You're drawing out of it what its meaning is. Another word is eisegesis which is obviously similar construction, but what does eisegesis mean? Read into. Read into, okay? Now, this is the thing that everybody does. Everybody does both of these. I'm scribbling. I don't really care. Okay, so we either read into the text things that we already know, or we draw out of the text. Now, what I... I, I'm going to say something controversial. I know that that's surprising. Yeah, first time. Whoa. I was waiting till today. <laughs> so if I read Babink's entire four-volume Reformed Dogmatics, okay, and then I go and I read Psalms, I'm going. There's no way that I cannot read into the text of Scripture something that I already have in my mind. So this idea that we're that it's absolutely always positively. No matter what terrible to read into the text, I actually disagree with. It depends on what you mean. Okay? Now, if I go and I look at the news, I'm sitting there and I'm watching Fox News, and now there's aliens. Okay? Aliens are coming down to Earth now all the time. So then I go and I, and I read the book of Revelation, and I start to, oh, yeah, see, this is what chapter 14 is talking about, the aliens. <laughs> now, that's also eisegesis. Now, that kind of eisegesis is the eisegesis that you shouldn't do. Okay? <laughs> But if you, if you think, right, if the, the, our beloved Jew, Jews of the first century, their problem was that they had a framework which they were reading into the scriptures, a bunch of things that weren't there. But Jesus still said, right, and your knowledge must be greater than theirs. You, you have to respect what they say because they read into the text a great deal that actually is there. And so everybody does this all the time. The idea is that you have to read the right things in, <laughs> into the scripture, and you have to draw the right things out of the scripture. Okay, and especially when we get to the principle of scripture interpret scripture, you're clearly reading into the text. You're putting meaning into it. When, when I today I'm going to do something outrageous, unless I was doing eyes to Jesus, and the apostles themselves are doing it. Um, when they when they mention some portion of Isaiah, and they start explaining it, and you go back to Isaiah, and you're like, how in the world? What are you talking about? Like, have you guys ever done this? Yeah, you go back and you read the section they're quoting, and first off, it's not exactly what it says because they don't mind paraphrasing. And you're like, well, how about the words wrong? So what is it? What do we do with that? They're constantly reading into the text. Okay? Our hermeneutic of, of the whole scriptures being about Jesus means we're going to read into it. So that's the right way of reading into it. The wrong way of reading into it is dispensationalism. Okay? If you don't know what that is, you're welcome. You're, you're living a good life. Okay, so <clears throat> getting these two things correct is what we need to do. It's not that we do one or the other. We do both. We can't help it. It's just doing it correctly. Okay, any questions about that? Every book I read, it was just like, absolutely do not read into it. 
It's like, I don't, so <laughs> once you come to a certain amount of knowledge, how do you not? Anyway. Kind okay. of unavoidable, right? I mean, yeah. even just being raised in a certain culture, you're going to read. Yep. You're going to read way. into it no matter what. Right. Okay, so another word is hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? You guys heard these words before? Mm-hmm. Eisegesis, exegesis, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Okay, hermeneutics is simply the science of interpretation. This board is very shaky. The science of interpretation, okay? So when we're drawing out of a text or reading into a text, um, when we're doing this process, the tools that we're using, the method that we're using is called hermeneutics. So people, every, everybody has a hermeneutic. Greek Orthodox people have a specific hermeneutic. Reformed people have a hermeneutic. You have a hermeneutic of your own. It's your hermeneutic. When you're reading it, you have a process that you're doing. Um, how many of you guys read your Bibles on a regular basis? Okay. How many of you guys have been reading it exactly the same way for years and years and years? Years and years and years. Right? Like... <laughs> What's that? I listen to like four chapters a day. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. See, so this is what it looks like when I'm doing hermeneutics. Okay? So this is, um, if you look through here, the whole thing doesn't look like that. Uh, you go to a section I haven't preached on. This is, this is, me, pre- this is me just prepping on Monday to, to figure out what I'm going to preach about. And, and my sons always say, uh, what are the, what, like, what's the difference between this, this squiggle and this squiggle, and why are they pin? And it's a secret code. Okay, <laughs> there's a code going on there, and and so I have a process, and I'm sure that all of you guys have a similar process. So part of what I want to do is is as as a group, right? We should have a re- redeemer church should have its own hermeneutics. We should have one that we agree upon. This is the way that we read the Bible, understand the Bible, and interpret the Bible. Okay, it's important for us as a group of people to not have a bunch of individual ones, but as much as we can, have one that is the same. <laughs> okay, so the first thing I want to start with when we're going to talk about hermeneutics uh, is, is criticism. Okay, so biblical criticism, literary criticism, some call it, but I call it biblical criticism. Because when I sit down, I have a copy of Henry V that I just taught through. It looks exactly the same, right? All the squiggles, all that stuff is, is there just like it is in the Bible, right? So literary criticism, in one sense, is literary criticism. But when it comes to the Bible, there, there are slight differences. I don't care um, about who copied uh, Henry V and whose hands it fell, right? I don't care about the folio editions and what alterations were made to the text. I don't care about that. Now, do I care about that when it comes to the scriptures? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I, I have a copy of Plato, I've been reading it. I do not care what manuscript edition they use when they can, when they when they wrote it. I don't care. But when it comes to the scriptures, I do. Okay. So historical criticism or biblical criticism is distinct, in my opinion, from literary criticism. It's not the same. So when it comes to biblical criticism, there's historical. Okay. We're we're we're, we're trying to determine the broader historical and cultural context of the ancient Near East uh, and Mediterranean world. I don't read anything like I read the Bible. I don't. I. I, um, I don't do archaeological studies on Plato. <laughs> like I'm sure there's some people who do that, but I don't. Um, they just recently found a, an inscription of King David that proves the uh, Old Testament. Right. This is and and these people are the secularists. They're like, oh my gosh, we can't believe it's not a myth. Um, 
and, and so I like to collect those arguments because it, it, it's, it's helpful to me. It's, right? it, it helps me uh, in my own faith. It helps me with my study, especially when it comes to uh, the timeline. The timeline in the Old Testament can be very confusing. But when, again, when it comes to Henry V or Plato, I don't, I, don't, I don't care about that. So historical criticism in the Bible is understanding the context in which, in which it was originally written, as, as well as um, how the manuscripts came into our hands. Okay, there are different manuscript traditions. We're not going to get into that right now. Um, it's a little over my head even most of the time. I'm sure Dan could lecture on it. He knows a great deal more about this than I do. But um, what, what ultimately matters is that we, um, we do actually not... Let me, let me back up. It's important to study these things. But as we said at the very beginning, the, the scripture are, is self-authenticating. It's not like, right, they could find something buried in the sand and suddenly I don't believe the scriptures anymore. That's not going to happen, okay? You have to get these things in the right order. So once you move from historical criticism to literary criticism, this is understanding the Bible uh, in its various parts because the book of Psalms is not the same, say, as 2 Samuel, right? One is narrative, one is poetry. And, and this is always comes up when people talk about the literal interpretation. Well, the literal interpretation of Psalm 2 is actually different than the literal interpretation of 2 Samuel 2. Now, why would I say that? Why is the literal interpretation of these two books, these two chapters in the Bible, different? One's history, one's poetry. One's history, one's poetry, right? When in Psalm 2, when it says that God sits in the heavens and laughs, right? What is the literal interpretation of that? That's very different than when, when it says Eli is sitting in the gates of the city, okay? So the literal interpretation of that is that Eli is literally <laughs> sitting in the gates of the city, where the literal interpretation of God sits in the heavens and laughs is what? What, what would be the literal interpretation of that, you guys think? Mm. That's his disposition. Yes, it's his disposition. Exactly. He's not physically sitting somewhere physically laughing. Okay? Well, literally, this guy cheering and sitting yeah, literally. I prefer the term seriously. Yeah, do so I take the Bible seriously, right. not but, literally? Because I might have poetry or apocalyptic literature right. that I take seriously, but by taking it seriously, I'm no means taking it literally. Yeah. But to take Genesis seriously means you need to take it literally. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> I'm glad we're not speaking any, about anything spicy. <laughs> so the last thing I'm, I include, and, and this is just the school of thought that I come from and that I, I really want all of us to know more about, is called typology. Okay? So historical criticism, you got literary criticism where you're talking about genres and you're talking about like uh, syntax and you're talking about the poetry of it you're talking about all these different things when it comes to the language and, and the text itself but typo, typology is very problematic for a lot of modern Christians because it seems fanciful um, when you talk about terebinth trees and what they have to do with the guy whose eyes are opened and sees men walking around that look like trees and you start talking about Adam being a tree because he was planted in the Garden of Eden. When I start talking this way, some people who are used to it are like, oh, here, here we go, this is fun. Other people are like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, and, and the reason typology is so controversial is because in the Middle Ages and High Christendom, they had a form, they had this, this way of interpreting scripture that people think is typology that was actually a really bad method. 
Okay, so they would they would al- um, allegorize allegorize. Yes. Yes. Right. There we go. Everything. Um, and so when when somebody uh, in, in the old like uh, there was an what was I reading this passage where this patristic father was talking about there was there kept being two objects in the story and so he kept saying it was the two natures of Jesus and I was like no what are you talking about it was super confusing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you would have this all this allegory. Everything has to be about Jesus, right? Like, so the Song of Solomon isn't about Solomon and his bride. It's only about Jesus and the church. And, and that, I don't think, is true. I think you begin to lose a lot of things. So people are very, this is a very sketchy way of doing it. And when you say typology now, if people don't really know what they're talking about, they think that's what I mean by typology. What Peter Lightheart and James Shorten mean by typology. But typology, if Jesus... It simply means this. If Jesus said on the road to Emmaus that the entire scriptures were about him, then that, that is what I'm talking about when I say typology. I go and I read about Moses striking the rock, and he strikes it twice, and water comes out, and then he gets in trouble. That story is about what? Jesus. Yeah. Now, how? How is that about Jesus? That's a great question. Yeah. Okay, and so there's types, there's antitypes, there's foreshadowing, there's um, they take certain images like trees and they build in meeting as the story goes and tell the tree of Jesus that he's crucified on uh, we can talk about it 50 different ways it, it takes upon itself all the meaning of every tree in scripture up to that point that's what I mean by typology does that make sense you guys? a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and I mean we're going we're gonna to talk about this is partially why we're doing this class because I, I, we're going to go through Genesis and I promise that we will just get through it in the order that, and in the pace that I've written down and on our schedule. Because <laughs> there's a reason I don't preach through it. Because I don't. I would just go like a half verse at a time, and it would be, <laughs> take us 20 years. Um, but like Jesus, Jesus had the. Um, like here's an example. Uh, can you guys think of a story in the Bible where someone met their wife at a well? That would be. Uh... Oh, Jacob. Jacob, yeah. right? But he, so, he wasn't there at the well. The servant was. Good point. Okay, so there's a story where a servant goes, but that's Isaac's, that's Isaac. Isaac's bride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's his bride. And then Jacob meets, meets one. Jacob. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's two stories. Yeah. Right, hold on, hold on. So there are two brides that are attained at wells. One is Jacob, one is Isaac's bride, but it's his ser- the servant who goes. Moses also meets his bride at a well. Okay, and you go and you look at those stories and there's wells and there's rocks that get rolled away and there's sheep and there's all this stuff. And, and then you, you think, well, wait a minute. Um, there's something about oasis, a, a man meeting his bride at an oasis in the desert, a garden in the desert. And you think, well, didn't Adam meet his wife in a garden? Right? And wasn't there water flowing there? Okay, okay. Outside, outside of that was a wilderness. Yeah, and then you sit down and you read John 4, and there's Jesus at a well talking to a Samaritan woman, and they're talking about, what, Jacob and sheep and husbands, and you're like, oh, Jesus meets his wife, the Gentile bride member, at a well, and you start to put all these things together. That's what I mean when I say typology. Now, what I didn't do there is I didn't go any further. I didn't draw any conclusions. I made some vague connections. But that's what I mean when I say typology. Okay? When, when we go, if you go back to the Old Testament and there's like some random, you know, some random verse, 
and, and you build like a whole theology on it, or you talk about this whole spiritual meaning behind um, behind it. And, and I'm trying to think of a really bad example. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the ladder, the ladder in heaven. No, I, I've I heard, do. Yeah, Jacob and the ladder. I mean, there, there are people the Middle Ages. If you ever read their commentary, sometimes it is super strange stuff. And, and they have like they have this fourfold meaning. It had to have like a there's like a moral meaning to it. There is a uh, um, a spiritual meaning to it, and there is a al- al- allegory, yeah, and a literary. So that's what. You, so you go to every text and you find these four things, and and that really does seem like a weird way to do it, doesn't it? So what what we do is some of that every time um, we we interpret, but you have to be very careful about this method. Okay, so we're going to talk a lot more about that. See, I can't even talk about it a little bit without talking about it a lot. <laughs> but I think more Christians need more typology. I think we would read the Old Testament more often, and we would understand it, and we would get a lot more out of it if we understood how it worked typologically. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, I just got a book by James Jordan, and it, the, the whole thing's 400 pages, and it's just about trees and rocks. In the scriptures, and I'm really looking forward to reading it and not understanding most of it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do now is, is dial in and look at how we, what is our science, what is the process, the process by which we interpret scripture. Okay, the first principle, and that's what these are going to be our principles that we use, is that the Holy Spirit, okay, the Holy Spirit is the primary means of interpreting scripture. Okay? He wrote it. He is the one who will tell you what it means. I'm going to read some sections from the Westminster Confession. Uh, sections 4, 5, and 6. Okay? The, the, the authors of the Westminster Confession thought this was a really important idea. So every throughout their first chapter on the Holy Scriptures, they keep including it. They keep adding it on as like, a, like oh yeah, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Okay? So they, they do in successfully in section 4, 5, and 6. And this is what they say. They say, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Okay? So we have to depend upon God, when, when, um, and we have to receive it, opposed to standing over it in judgment. Okay, in section 5 they say, Yet notwithstanding, for our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, it is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Okay, so there you are, there the scriptures are, and the Holy Spirit is, is making you understand what it is that you're reading. That's the primary um, principle when it comes to interpreting scripture. In section 6, they say, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. Okay? So, a man can sit down, and he can... I, I could teach him all these other principles. And, but if he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he's not going to come to understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Okay? The, the, the Holy Scriptures are beautiful. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole pamphlet on why, even if you don't believe in the... In God, you should read the King James Bible because it is one of the greatest pieces of literature ever made. I agree with that. And lots of people agree with that. If you take a great books course and, and the atheists there are trying to explain to us the Western canon, they include large sections of the scriptures in there because, because there's a lot in there that's worthy of study if you're studying literature, history, 
and the Western canon. What, what, no, what none of those people are ever going to do is come to understand it in a saving way. They're not, they're not going to know, draw any closer to God unless the Holy Spirit is operating on them when they're doing it. Okay? So when you're sitting down in the morning to study your scriptures, it's the Holy Spirit. It, that's the first thing. That, that, that is what's operating on you because he is the one who wrote it. He's the one who can explain it. This is called illumination. Have you guys heard that before? Mm-hmm. Illumination. You are illuminated. The light gets turned on by the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not just uh, intellectual ascent. Uh, it, is, it is an operation of the Holy Spirit presently, actively working in you. Okay? He's present there with you. If you are sitting there and you suddenly have an aha moment, and you come to understand yourself, your sin, your God, your salvation in, in any deeper way, the Spirit is literally there with you, causing that to happen. Okay? You're, you're, he's indwelling you, you're communing with Him while it's happening. Okay, so illumination involves more than understanding what Scripture says. It is an internal persuasion of and yielding to its truth. Okay? It's not just about um, understanding what is said. It is an internal persuasion of and yielding to its truth. You, you read it, you believe it, and then you obey it. That, that is what is, is happening. If that's not happening, then you're not really interpreting scripture. I don't care how smart you are. I, I've actually read some comment, commentary on the Bible written by people who aren't believers. And it is the weirdest things I've ever read. Like the way they explain it. It's, it's very strange. Um, it was not a, an experience that I've repeated <laughs> because it wasn't very profitable. Okay, um, and this is true. I, you know, I talk about it. There's a the Jews have it. A, a, there's a commentary on the Old Testament that you can buy. I have it, and it's it's edited by Protestants. And, and what, what it, it's it's also very interesting to read what they have to say because they were depending on when when it was written, interpreting the Scripture as believers. Okay, but then you get into, like, say, the Middle Ages, and the Jews that are interpreting the Old Testament, it, it, their, their interpretations get weirder and weirder and weirder the further and further they get from being God's people. Does that, does that make sense? And then you get into, like, the 1200s, and you start reading commentaries on Isaiah, and it is super goofy. The goofiest stuff you'll ever read. If you're ever bored, or if you ever need to go to sleep. Okay, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Okay, so once, you have, once we understand that this whole thing is an operation of the Holy Spirit, okay, now we're going to talk about things that you're actually doing. So the first thing that, is, that should be in, in the forefront of your mind is tradition. Okay, tradition actually should exist in your mind. I know we're Protestants, and we think that tradition has no place in, in what we are doing, uh, but it actually is very important. The Westminster Confession says we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and revered esteem of the Holy Scripture. Has this ever happened to you? Where you're reading some book written by a Christian in the, from the past, and they start explaining something in the Scriptures that you've never heard before. And you go back and you look in the Scriptures and you think, oh my gosh, I've never seen that before. And this is amazing. Has this ever happened to you guys? Okay, some people. Well, this is why we need to read more tradition maybe. Like, if you read John Owen, and he's talking about communing with God, and, and the way he talks about it, or Jonathan Edwards, or Spurgeon, or Anselm, or actually, if you really want to have a thrill, a, a theological thrill, Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, his entire, his argument about why 
Jesus had to come in the flesh. The, his whole argument about why there is an incarnation makes you understand the entire Bible better and, and differently. And, and what he was doing is exactly what I want to teach you guys how to do. He, he, took, he, he, he read into the scriptures, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he makes his entire argument for the Christian faith based on the incarnation. Okay, he explains why it happened, how it happened, and what it means to us. And, and if you read a book like that, you will not go back and read the scriptures by yourself the same way as you had before. Does this make sense? Now, I, I understand that we're told all the time, right? Well, the, the whole Reformation was all about tradition. Jesus' problem with the Jews was about they had traditions and he didn't. And, and I, it's never, ever, ever as if one party has traditions and one party wants to get rid of them. They're always arguing about what, what role the tradition plays. Jesus' problem with the first century Jews wasn't that they had traditions, it was how they were using them. The problem in the Reformation wasn't that the, the Roman Catholics had tradition, it was how they were using them. Okay? And, and there's very famous um, moments that are, are revelatory about this. Calvin, in his letter at the start of the Institutes, says, says to the king, King Francis of France, he says, listen, just go and look at everything I've, read, I've written here, and you will see that we are actually the ones adhering to the true Christian tradition. So it's not even, right? People think the reformers were, were jettisoning Tradition. No, their argument was that they actually were doing what, tra what the, the tradition, um, they, they were upholding the tradition as it was originally meant. Did Paul talk about handing down tradition to, to, his, to his people? Yeah, he talked about it. Yeah. He talked about the fact that Timothy right. knew what he knew because he learned it from his mother. Right, his uh, At the beginning of Luke, he says, listen, he says, this is what was handed down to us. And that word in Greek is tradition. It's where we get the word tradition. So he, it was traditioned to him. What he received, he was given. And, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote an essay that's really helpful about this, about, called On Reading Old Books. And his argument was that you should read three old books for every new book. Um, and, and the reason for it is because you don't realize the errors that you're making. Because the people who are writing current theology books are making the same errors. You have, like, I have more in common with an Arminian or, or Baptist minister. We have, we, I have more in common with him as far as our mistakes go than I would with somebody from the four, uh, 16th century. Right? I, I read other Reformed guys, and, and, and I think I'm, oh yeah, he and I are, are on the same page. But I actually have more in common with contemporaries. Why? Because we grew up in the same culture. Right? I mean, we're, we're materialists, our view of science, our view of the natural order, our view of um, reason and how it works. I, I, I can't get away, and I can't get out of the water that I'm in, because I'm a fish, and this is where I, I don't know anything else. And so reading old books, reading tradition, helps us to see the errors that we are making. Okay? Um, and this, this happens all the time. There, there are errors, even in the Series C, that are very common. And I don't really see them until I read what some Reformed Dutch guy said in the 14th century. I read that, and I'm like, oh, you know what? And then I go, and I, I think, I wonder if this idea, where did we get this current idea? Mm. And I go, and I find out, well, this is like a, a very, current, <laughs> very current idea. And people make this argument all the time about Pato Communion. Do you guys know Pato Communion is a really old idea? It's not like we just made, like, Doug Wilson didn't make up Pato Communion, giving, <laughs> giving communion to kids in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, what happens when I argue with people is they, don't, they say, well, you guys just invented this. 
like, no, 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 you go, there's a long history of it. And, and rootless evangelicals, modern Christians, do not know their past. They don't know their people. They don't know the, the water that they're swimming in. And, and reading old books helps us see the mistakes that we're making. It helps us to understand things from a different perspective. Does that make sense? Well, it down to the Holy Spirit, too. Yes. Because they're not trusting in the fact that the Holy Spirit taught men through the ages that we can learn from them. Exactly. Right? So you're being arrogant if you think that this is the age that you, that you have enlightenment from and nothing else is there. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, Keith. That's it. Right. It's not... We act as if the Holy Spirit would have never revealed anything to anybody else but us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and that's actually what I wrote. I actually wrote that down here, so thank you. Good job. See, you're anticipating me. And, and it's true. This is this is what we don't... Like, you, you go to somebody and you say, hey, you guys should try reading Anselm sometime uh, about the Incarnation. And you're like, well, I mean, he was a... Ca-. I was told, well, he was a Catholic. I say, okay, well, back then everybody was. <laughs> First of all, it's kind of hard not to be. There's no. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of argue that Celtic Christians and Roman Christians were different, but only slightly. Okay, they just argued about the date of Easter. Um, and so, yeah, he was a Roman Catholic. Fine, you got me. But it, it, to assume, therefore, that he in that time like, wouldn't know what we would know, right? Or he didn't have the spirit in some fashion. Like saying the Jews killed Jesus. Yeah, the Jews killed Jesus. <laughs> yeah, the Jews killed Jesus. Right, the Romans did. Yeah, well, the Romans killed him, I killed him, you killed him, we all killed him. I mean, really, there's everyone's to blame for Jesus dying. But, yes. You want to maybe say something about the difference between content and authority with regards to tradition? Uh, I'm sorry, what? Between content and authority. <laughs> the, different, the difference between content and As authority. As in, the content may be correct, mm-hmm. but the issue that the reformers, say, had with tradition right. was not necessarily, was sometimes about content. Right but was fundamentally about authority. Yes, we will get to that. Yeah, we will get to that. Yeah, because that that was, um, yes. Again, you guys are all anticipating because this is a class that I'm enjoying. <laughs> because, um, yeah, the, the problem that I want to deal with now is just we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I mean, seriously, you guys should all get Athanasius' work on the Incarnation. It's fantastic. Um, you guys should get, there's a collected works you can get of Anselm. And it's, it's not even in Latin. You can read it translated into very readable English. It's very good. Uh, Boethius wrote a book called The Consolation of Philosophy. Uh, and that is like monumental in the Middle Ages. Because what he, he did was reconcile all kinds of Greek philosophy with the New Testament and really set up the Middle Ages for what, what, it, like what it was going to become. Really, He was very influential. And if you read things like that, right? And this, I, I had this problem recently with students. They, they said modern literature. And I said, um, well, what do you mean by modern? Because when I say modern, I actually mean like the 15th century. Um, and, and this throws people because I say things like this. Because I, I would even, I, I would say, going back to the 15th, 16th century, that's all modern literature. Um, that's not ancient literature. And so people think they read really old books because they read Spurgeon, um, which I, I, I don't have a problem with. But that's not what I would call ancient. Uh, my son just last night, right, young people do this, he called this movie a classic movie that was made in 2008. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess that that was like right after you were born, right. but uh, yeah, that's not old. And, and, and this always happens. You know, people think Huck Finn is like some sort of something from the ancient past. 
Um, okay, so the next thing that we need to know after tradition, which we're not done with, we're going to come back to. But the other thing is um, good and necessary consequence. Good and necessary consequence. Uh, so it, it comes from the confession uh, uh, section six. It says, by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. Okay, there are things uh, when, when we're reading that are just straight up, right? Don't steal stuff. Okay, that, that's pretty clear. Right. Jesus died to save me from my sins. Again, pretty clear. Uh, there are other times where I have to sit down and I have to think. Um, and and the pre- when I'm trying to derive, when I'm trying to exegete, I have to use this principle, good and necessary. Okay, so I can sit down with portions of the scripture and say, okay, you know what? In order to be a Christian, you have to be bitten by a snake and, um, and not die. Okay, now, I, I, uh, there, there are verses that talk about that. But is that good? And is that necessary? No, it's neither good nor necessary. Okay, so that if you if you ever come up with something from Scripture, the first questions to ask yourself is is this is is this good, and is it necessary? Um, God wants me to show Him that I love Him by taking my son up on a mountain and sacrificing Him. Is that good and necessary? Right? Is that is that how we understand the story of Isaac? Now, open if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew twenty two. Uh, like a, a good example of um, a, a good and necessary consequence is the fact that we commune women. Um, we are not commanded in the New Testament to give communion to women. In, the, in fact, in the Old Testament, uh, women are not circumcised and women do not re- receive um, the sacraments. But in the New Testament, we understand that Jesus has changed things, right? In him, there's neither male nor female, slave, nor free, but all one and the same. So we say, oh, by good and necessary consequence then, we baptize women and we commune them. That's like an example. I always give negative examples, but that's a positive example. This is good and this is necessary, okay? So if we go to chapter 22 and look at verses 23 to 33. Yeah, verse 23 to 33. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Okay, so this is an argument that Jesus is having. That's not what we have. No. no. Oh, I'm sorry. Chapter 22. Wrong reference. Ah! Chapter 22. I'm fired. Matthew 22, verse 23. There we go. Matthew 22, verse 23. Okay, Sadducees ask about the resurrection. All right, so they're arguing about the resurrection. Okay, everyone? This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. They're arguing about the resurrection. So then down towards the end, Jesus answered them. Okay, it's in verse 29. Jesus gives an answer to their theological question. He says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, so in order to prove that God is the God of the living, he goes back to this, section, this verse in Genesis, and it's not actually what it's about. You go back and you read that portion of Genesis, it's not about the resurrection. But he, he is using good and necessary consequence. If, if, if this is what is said about God, then he is not the God of the dead. Okay, We have to realize he's the God of the living. And so Jesus is reading into, right, or he's drawing out of something in the text there by reading into it. 
something. Does that make sense? He, he understands who God is. And he's demonstrating it from a verse in, in the original context that's not what the verse was about at all. Does this make sense, you guys? This is what good and necessary consequence means. When you read a piece of scripture, and it may have a direct command, it may be narrative, you may have a response from a, one character to another character. And, and, and what you are doing is if you're drawing something out of that text, you have to make sure that it's good and that it's necessary. Because can you guys think of something, have you guys ever heard people make conclusions from scripture, draw something out of scripture that wasn't good and wasn't necessary? Mormon baptism of the dead. Oh, baptism of the dead. Great example. Okay, there's a whole doctrine based on this, and what they're doing is, is drawing something out of the text that isn't actually there. Okay, that, that section is very confusing. This one is also confusing about being given in marriage in heaven. Right? There's a lot of things that people assume. I kind of skipped over that. Uh, there's a lot of things that people assume by what Jesus says here that there, there is no scriptural basis for. <laughs> you know, whether or not the angels can have children or not. Can they make offspring? That's not, right? That's not what this was talking about, but people make that inference from it, which is funny to me. At exactly the moment that Jesus is using the good and necessary consequence, people misuse <laughs> you know, exegesis just at this moment. Uh, and so we have to be very careful when we're doing this kind of stuff. Okay, um, what, what I find to be fascinating as these principles work together is, is there another place in Scripture that talks about the resurrection of the dead? Besides this one where Jesus is talking about this. Can you guys think about other scriptures that talk about? Besides where he actually rises from the dead. Yeah, oh, okay, there's that one. Right. <laughs> there's that one where he actually does come out of the ground, yes. Elijah resurrects some child. Yeah, Elijah resurrects, uh, or, well, he brings back from the dead. Yeah, but can you guys think of other times that other scriptures that talk about the resurrection? Talk about the Yeah, that prove that there is one. There will be a resurrection. Job 19. Okay, Job 19, which says what? It's... On that day, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Mm-hmm. In my flesh I will see God. And that's not in the New Testament, that's in the Old Testament, right? So, so that, that principle, that we, what we just did, is when you, when you take something out of the Scripture and you say, okay, this is good and this is necessary, the next step is to go and, and find other verses okay, that, that show the same thing. Now, if you can't find any, that should be a warning to you that you probably are making the wrong conclusion. Now that's not always absolutely true, but if you're in that once, if you're this is what um, like the deep think right. This is why the church needs doctors and scholars and people who are doing it. I want people asking questions with, that are a little edgy, <laughs> that's out there on the skinny branches. What I don't want are my my normal parishioners doing it on a, on a regular basis in their own home because this is how cults get formed. Okay, <laughs> so generally speaking, if you can't prove some conclusion you've come to from from scriptures, from other scriptures, you should go back to the drawing board and start afresh, okay? Okay, so the other thing that we use is sanctified wisdom. Well, we're almost out of time. Sanctified wisdom. Now, what is sanctified wisdom? You guys know? What is sanctified wisdom? Is it what you talked about earlier? The Holy Spirit working through you to help you with the scriptures? Well, that's that's how sanctified wisdom starts. But over time, over time right? yeah, over time your wisdom becomes sanctified. I am wiser than I was ten years ago. Oh, I see. 
Yeah, and, and so here's what the confession, how it explains it. And uh, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature, and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Okay, so good by, by sanctified wisdom, I, I can determine when we have worship service and when we don't, how long it should be, what it should include. Um, things that fall into this category are, are worship, obviously, right? Like the regulative principle. What is the regulative principle? The regulative principle is this idea that we must worship the way God tells us to. And, okay, what Christian isn't going to agree with that? So then I say, okay, so go to the scriptures then and show me where he tells us how. Oh, that gets a little trickier, okay? Now, for us, the way we do worship is there is this view that he didn't leave us without instructions. He gave us the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus tells us how to worship him. And what we don't have are bulls and lambs. Right? We don't have the sacrificial system. We know that's the sacrifice we have is Christ. Right. So you go back and you see in Leviticus, they would sacrifice animals and they would apply them to the worshiper in certain patterns. So all we've done is said, okay, well, we're doing the same thing, the same pattern, except the sacrifice we're using is Jesus. So we confess our sins, and, and what's the sacrifice? Jesus, right? We, we, we hear the word of God read, and, 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 and we, yeah, we commune with him, right? And, and so there's um, a sacrifice there where they would eat the animal together in the presence of God, right? And, and so what do we do? We have communion in the presence. So we can align everything in our liturgy with the book of Leviticus. And, th- and this is not, I, I, I'm not dogmatic about this idea, but it is, I believe it's the clearest uh, understanding of how to worship. If you want to worship, I think this is a pretty good explanation. But what, what, what is interesting about worship, and this is how I will close, this is where tradition matters. I read a book on the history of worship, and you know what? There is no communion, no group of Christians in any language, in any area that has worshipped God exactly the same for a long period, long periods of time. You go back and you're like, oh, these guys did this for a while, and they did this liturgy for a while, and they. But you know what always is involved? Singing, praying, reading, <laughs> expounding. There's like certain things that everybody always does, in in no particular order for the history of the church. And so when people start really arguing about these kinds of things, they're, they're making more out of it than they really should. Everybody is a regulative principalist, all of us. We all want to worship according, uh, right? There's people who will sing songs without instruments. And, and if you talk to them, they have verses to back this up. There's, there's theology behind it. I don't know how you then sing songs where in the song you're talking about playing musical instruments while you refuse to play musical instruments, but again, we, ex- we you know, nuance. <laughs> I'm sure that there are things that we do that are just that weird, right? Right? I'm, I'm sure. Okay, so what we've covered so far, this, this hermeneutic, this science of interpretation, the process, is that it's completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We use tradition, we use good and necessary consequence, and we use sanctified wisdom. Okay, as time goes on, you're able to see in the scriptures more and more of what you should because you've been learning through the process the Holy Spirit is taking you on. Okay, so next week, the homework uh, is on narratives. Um, so the, I'll, I will send out an email that has the chapter in it. So we'll be talking about Old Testament narratives, but we'll also be finishing up with our hermeneutical principles. Okay, any questions? You guys?
Okay, go. 